All right, if you open to Exodus chapter 27, as you know, we've had three lessons, really two lessons, but divided into, second one was divided into two. We've done a complete overview of the tabernacle from the entrance all the way back to the back of the Holy of Holies, just to try to get a picture of everything in our mind, how it's all put together. Uh, and I can I cannot be emphatic enough that God designed it and he designed it in minute detail. <clears throat> I'm giving you an extra little sheet that I typed up just to maybe give you some explanation uh, about the tabernacle and I'll just read it quickly. It says, many people have a difficult time understanding the book of Hebrews. That may be because much of the book is directed to the Jews who fully understood the illustrations used by the human penman of the book. That's especially true of chapters 7 through 10. These four chapters the writer referred to and used the tabernacle which the Jews were familiar with to show the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same teaching are available to us and teach us many, many things about Christ, the church, believers, the daily life applications. To understand the tabernacle helps us to understand the book of Hebrews and to understand the book of Hebrews helped us to understand the tabernacle. It's for this reason... You need to note this, that the Holy Spirit on at least four occasions in Scripture, and I've listed those, clearly stated the following in the building of the tabernacle. And I paraphrase these three things just to put them in our language. Nothing was left to the imagination of Moses in the design of the tabernacle. God didn't say build a building. Nothing was left to the preferences of the workmen who built the tabernacle. Nothing was left to the desires of the people who worshipped in the tabernacle. You apply that today and says God has given us a design and an exact plan for us to follow, both to worship him and to serve him. His work is not left to our imagination, our preferences, or our desires. God's work and God's work, God's word and God's work are to be conducted according to his instructions. I'm trying to impress on you how important it is that Moses was to follow the direction that God gave. Everything, I don't know that I've covered it completely, but everything in that tabernacle had an application to New Testament truth. Everything was important, and God said, you do it exactly this way if you want my blessings. So I gave you that. You can just put it in maybe for future reference. But let's look this morning in Exodus chapter 27. We're going back now. We're going to begin a series, I guess, in the middle of this. There's seven pieces of what the Bible calls furniture in uh, the tabernacle, starting at the where we're going to start this morning with the brazen altar all the way back to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. We will study at least one week on each piece of furniture and try to make the applications and the pictures. Some of these will be divided into two lessons, I'm sure. They're just... Uh, too much detail to try to communicate it all in uh, one 30-minute session here. But uh, in chapter 27, in verse 1, where we're starting this morning, God said, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubics long and five cubics broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubics, and thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horn shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. 
Thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, his shovels, his basins, his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof shalt thou make of brass, and thou shalt make for it a great of network of brass, and upon the net shall thou make four brazen rings of the four corners thereof, and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even of the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bury it. Hollow the board shall thou holler with board shall thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. And that's one of the places where God made an emphasis on you make it exactly like I showed you to make it. Uh, so we're talking about this piece of furniture right here, and it sits right here. We'll look at this one where the location of it uh, was. That's the first piece, and we got a picture of it up here. Now that might be a little bit distorted, and I'm not criticizing them. I purchased those from uh, Regular Baptist Press. Uh, they show it a little bit oblong, and that's uh, that's uh, not true to the scriptures. It's exactly four square. God not only said, not, God not only gave us the measurements of it, five by five, and we'll get to that. But He said it's four square, and there was a purpose for that. But let's look number one at the person that that altar represents. We'll get to all the elements uh, either this Sunday or next Sunday. But that altar is a detailed, complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is picturing uh, Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ. I put in here the way of the cross leads home. Uh, that altar was sitting, and we'll look at it in just a minute, at the very entrance to that tabernacle, and God on at least two, loca two different places made sure that it was put exactly where he wanted it to be put. And uh, you all know the applications, but we'll get to that in a minute. But let's look in Hebrews chapter 10, and I think you can see the picture that we have in the brazen altar, and it ties together with Hebrews chapter 10. And you'll note, too, as we look at these things over in Hebrews, a number of times Paul either alludes to or even calls the tabernacle by name. But let's look in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> For the law having a shadow of good things to come. You see the reference back to the tabernacle? I think Paul wrote the book. It doesn't make any difference, but I may use his name. Paul was saying, go back and look at the tabernacle because it's a shadow or a picture of things to come, which were now in the present. And he's trying to address that and help them to understand. The Jews were having a problem. Uh, with transferring from the law to grace. And Paul is using this, or the writer of Hebrews is using this, the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers unto, they're, they're unto perfect. You see the reference back to the altar? He said the sacrifices that they're making back there they can never perfect you. They were just a covering for sin, a temporary covering, the offering of bull and goats, and we'll see that, the, the, the silver sockets that it set on, said that can't ever take away sin. So Paul's referring back to that tabernacle. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? 
He said that, that would have ceased if they could have done that, but they couldn't. Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You see again the picture? The priest went in once a year into the Holy of Holies to make that sacrifice. And then verse 4, he said, For it is not possible that the blood of bull and goats should take away the sins. That's the sacrifice that was made on that altar. Therefore, when he cometh into the world, talking about Jesus Christ, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body has thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, as it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. You understand that application? He said, this is doing away with those offerings that were made on that brazen altar. Jews, listen to me. He said, now you've got the Lord Jesus Christ that made one, one offering one time forever. And we'll see that right here. Look in verse 10. Uh, verse 9 again. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you all see the picture? Do you all see how Paul was tying it together? He said he was talking to the Jews, but he's talking to us. He said, you all know all about the sacrifices that were made on that brazen altar right here. They understood it in minute detail. They weren't in the dark like we are sometimes. He said, now I want you to see the picture of how that pointed you to your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and in the place of bull and goats, he made one sacrifice, one time, forever. And I don't understand this, and you don't either. We'll never be able to explain it. But he said he perfected us forever. That's hard to believe with the ungodly, sinful life that you and I live sometimes. Amen. <laughs> Even today. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to get into that subject. You just have to resolve that for yourself. But the person of the altar. Do you see the picture? That altar is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in it is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wood, the brass, the horns, everything that's there has got the same detail and we'll look at it. But number two on your sheet now, the pattern of the altar. Uh, he gave us some measurements and we won't reread all of those. But he said you build it exactly like this. Five cubics long, five cubics wide. We went over it last week. Don't you answer. What's the number of grace? Five is the number of grace. If it's, and God made it a point. He's not only said build it five by five. 
He said, build it four square. That's putting an emphasis on it. So five by five is 25. Somebody tell me what the number 25 is in Bible numerology. Exceeding grace. The what? Exceeding grace. Exceeding. Exceeding grace or grace upon grace or abounding grace. Or you could put in the words without, it is complete grace or perfected grace. In other words, everything's done. There's nothing else that can be added to what I'm doing. The Church of Christ, T.L. Smith, they would be well to learn that. They try to add to the grace of God, and I'm not being derogatory. I hope you don't think that, but God said, any man preach any other gospel than that which I preach, let him be accursed. You can't add to the grace of God. And God made that clear even back over here in the tabernacle uh, in those days. So... But then it said the height was three cubics, and that's four and a half feet. The number, the number three in Bible numerology, anybody know what that is? Speaks of deity. Speaks of deity. Speaks of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It was three cubics high, and in that day, they didn't have feet and inches. So uh, we just have to, we, we have to understand and accept that God put these numbers in the scriptures to their understanding to teach what he wanted to teach and then we have to trans. But it's, that makes it four and a half feet high. Uh, there was also a ladder that the priest used to go up on that and we'll get to that when we get to the priest and the dress and how he was supposed to be dressed and everything over in a much later lesson. But that teaches us without any, any doubt at all that the sacrifice was what? Lifted up to put on that altar. What does that teach us? Somebody tell me. Christ on the cross. Christ on the cross. Uh, look in Numbers chapter 9 verse 21 real quick. I didn't note this on there. I might should have. You can note it on there. I've got three of them. Uh, Numbers chapter 9 and verse 21. And that's not the right scripture. All right, look over in John chapter 2, verse 32. I'll find that next week and let you note it on there. John chapter 2 and verse 32. You're familiar with these. That's not right either. Well, somebody said when you lay a golden egg, you just step back and admire it and move on. I did all this scratch padding. It should be John 12:32. Y'all can add that in there. John 12:32. I apologize. John 12:32. The Lord Jesus said, "And I, if I be what, lifted up from the earth, lifted up off the earth, put on the cross, I will draw all men unto me." And then John chapter 3 and verse 14. Again, the Lord said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the scripture in Numbers, I'll find that uh, and get that to you. But that spoke where God gave Moses the instructions to put a brass serpent and pick it up. 
and lift it up and the people when they had sinned against God they could look at that uh, serpent and have their sins forgiven temporarily at least so every measurement in the altar 5 by 5 by 25 to 3 foot to 4 and a half looked it up all of it has some teaching some application to you and I today that shows us that altar pictured the Lord Jesus Christ going up on the cross, being a sacrifice, paying our sin debt, and perfecting us forever, which the uh, picture in the tabernacle could not do. Uh, then under B on that same, uh, says the materials in the altar, and we read that. It was made of shittim wood or Arcadia wood. Uh, what does that wood represent? Humanity, and it represents the humanity of you and I as believers. Psalms chapter 1, verse 2 or 3, right along in there, starting in verse 1, it says, He shall be, talking about believers, a godly man, he shall be like a what? A tree planted by rivers of water. So it represents our humanity, the body that we live in, but also for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it said that uh, he was like a root out of dry ground. And I hope, I hope you'll remember this, because we're going to, in some parts of this, it's going to be vitally important. You're going to be shocked. I've been shocked. Jesus Christ was what? He was the God-man. He was very God of very God. That means he was all God, completely God, totally God. Now, again, I can't explain this, but at the very same time, he was all man, very God, as if he was not God. He was God as if he was not man. I can't explain that, but the Bible teaches that, and there's no denying that. He was made to be flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. And that's going to be extremely important when we get over to one of these pieces of furniture that uh, we're going to see some truths that sometimes are greatly overlooked. Uh, just quickly, though, the uh, and all of you know that in his, and let me emphasize this, in his human nature, not in his God nature, in his human nature, he was sinless. He was sinless. Turn over quickly. It's worth stopping here. To go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. And there's a couple of other verses on there. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Now let me make a point of this. This is not referring to his godly nature. This is not referring to his godly nature. God cannot sin. This is referring to the flesh that you and I live in. Same type of flesh. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet what? He was without sin in his flesh, just like, exactly like you and I live in. Vitally important later on as we get to a couple of more pieces of these furniture. You might turn over to chapter 7 right there, just a page over chapter 7, verse 26. It says, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. 
Again, that's speaking of the humanity of Christ. You see, I'm going to just get a little bit ahead without giving detail. We are taught in the scriptures that we are to pattern our life after Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Be conformed to the image of his dear son, Romans 8, 29. You and I can't possibly begin to think about patterning our life after God. We don't have that. Because we live in a body of flesh, and God didn't live in a body of flesh. But Jesus Christ came and took on a body of flesh. And the Bible says he was tempted. He knows our infirmities. He knows everything we feel. He knows all the temptations we have, yet without sin. Vitally important that we understand. That scares us. Uh, All right, quickly. We've looked at the wood. That speaks of the humanity of man, the humanity of Christ. I gave the indestructibility of that in there. You can look those up. But that wood was covered with brass. Exodus chapter 27. We read that already. There's no point in leaving it. What does brass speak of in the scripture? Somebody tell me. Judgment. Everywhere that you find brass, it speaks of judgment. So we find humanity in us, humanity in Christ. We found it covered with judgment of God. We're under the judgment of God. That altar was made of wood. It was covered with brass. Every item on there was covered with grass. There is brass. There's no one little spot that's not under judgment. No one little spot of humanity that's not under the judgment of God. So you and I are in our human nature. We're, we're sinful. We're, that pictures us. We're also under the uh, brass covering that speaks of the covering of brass. But then comes along and you can add the application in the five by five. The grace of God and the abounding grace of God that completely and perfects through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Covers our sins and perfects us forever. Because the mercies of God and the blood of God always overrule the judgment of God. No place in the Bible where the the mercies of God does not cover and overrule and take away the judgment of God. Thank God for that. Amen. Amen. Thank God for that. All right, then let's look. Uh, We've got about six minutes here. He said, mount the horns on the corners. And those speak of several things. Number one, what does the what does a horn symbolize in Scripture? Power. It's in, look in Daniel chapter seven, verse eight. We're looking two or three of these. I think everybody understands it. But Daniel chapter seven and verse eight, talking about the Antichrist, it said, "And I considered the horns." And behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there was three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now turn over to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10, we're, we're trying to establish again what these horns picture. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. 
Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them, and the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, that speaks of power. Now look at one more in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And it'll complete the picture. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. Talking about the Lamb of God. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the, the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth unto all the earth. Talking about the number seven and the horn, what does that picture? That picture is complete power, perfect power, all power, sufficient power for whatever you and I need. So he said you put four corns. He told Moses, he said you put four horns, you put them all. What's the number four in numerology? I'll make you a list of this when I get a little time. What's four represent? The creative act of God. Speaks of four, speaks of the creative act of God. He created four corners of the earth. He created four seasons. He created, the Bible speaks of uh, four different winds, it, the four points on the compass. Everything you find in Scripture to have to do with four speaks of the creative act of God. But in application, those horns were mounted, as you can see. They were all turned out, pointing out in the four directions to the four corners of the earth. What does that teach us? The sacrifice of Christ was on that altar. We talked about the horns being the power of God. Paul said it is the power of God under salvation. And those four horns indicate and teach us that the gospel is for the four corners of the earth to every creature in every country, wherever it might be. It's effective. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. And it tells you and I, as members of the church, that we got a responsibility to take the gospel, the power of God, and the salvation to the four corners of the earth. Red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. Amen. We're going to pick up next week with the position, and we'll finish this 